That means if Lent is one week away, that today we are concluding our series in Ephesians. So I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians 6. Going to endeavor to make it nearly to the last verse. We'll we'll only make it through verse 20 today, and you'll have to read the, the concluding greetings or remarks on your own this afternoon. For most of the winter this year, I have been reading, maybe more accurately plodding my way through the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. And it's, you know, probably in excess of a thousand pages altogether, so it takes a while. But it's been a great way to fill up the long nights of winter with these, you know, great stories of epic battles and narrow escapes and wizards and elves and dwarves. But if I, if I had to guess what makes this series uh, sort of attractive or what pulls the average reader into what Tolkien has to say are not those other characters but a, a small handful of characters called the Hobbits. And there's something about their, their character, about who they are, their, their love for stories and for big meals, and, and they're just sort of a relatable bunch of people. But, but one of the things that, that's really compelling about the storyline is how this vast darkness, the vast evil that exists in their world through the, the power of Sauron and the orcs is undone by these four hobbits, right? Sam, Frodo, Mary, and Pippin. They are an unlikely bunch of heroes, And one of the the key themes that's developed in this series of novels looks at how there is this kind of power hidden away in these four characters. And it's a power that no one expects, no one is looking for. If you've seen the movies or you read the books, you'll know that there is this, this sort of cosmic eye in the east, right? The eye of Sauron, and it's searching the land for for any sign of strength, any sign of power, so that it could eliminate it, right, and and rule the world in darkness. But even though his eye is always searching, he never thinks or perceives that there could be power in these four halfling, you know, half-sized creatures. But somehow, in every instance, when the battle is most heated, when, when everything hangs in the balance, it is almost always a hobbit that strikes the decisive blow that, that brings victory into the hands of the righteous. And so the, the unseen power of the hobbits is not in their size, it's not in their physical strength, but it's in their courage, and it's in the selflessness of the fellowship they have with each other. Today, as we conclude our study of Ephesians, Paul's language turns to to describe a kind of cosmic battle that is taking place. And he says that that there is this intense struggle for us as the new people of God, the new household of God, to live lives that are worthy, lives that, that reflect the true character of who God is. It's a struggle in which we we battle forces outside of ourselves. We battle the the force or the power of sin within us. And at times, we might be tempted to despair in that struggle, in that battle. 
But Paul, as he finishes chapter 6, he wants to assure us that there is a resource of power that's been hidden away within us as a people. And it's the kind of power that our enemy, the devil, has no appreciation for, no conception of. It's a power that comes cloaked in weakness and in submission and in humility and in sacrifice. It is the power of the cross found in Jesus. And Paul says that through the person of Jesus Christ, we now too have become agents of this mighty strength. That the power of Jesus Christ has been set forth within us to to undo the powers of darkness and sin and death. And that the weapons that we carry into battle are the weapons of, of Jesus and his character in the way he wields his strength. So as we look at at that struggle and as that, at that battle today, I want us to think about the, the unlikely way, the unlikely uh, mantle of, of power that Christ brings through us into that battle. And invite you to turn with me to chapter 6, verse 10. Let me pray for us as we open the word of God together. Jesus, we are a people who are in need of your strength. We are a people who are in need of your courage. We are a people who are in need of your power at work within us. Lord, would you show us the true nature of your victory? Lord, would you show us what it means to have power not just for ourselves, but for the life of the world that you have come to save and rescue. Lord, would you teach us now. May the words of your your word, as I teach, may the meditations of all of our hearts, as we listen and receive them, be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we jump into verse 10, I think it's worth remembering where we've just come from last week. And remember that the end of chapter 5, the first part of chapter 6, is this lengthy discussion of submission. This discussion of what it means to be yielded to one another, what it means to serve one another in the new household of our God. And it's interesting to me that it's at the end of that long discussion of this self giving kind of, of way of being, this, this perceived weakness that we show toward one another in submission, that Paul concludes and says, from that place of submission, from that place of weakness, now I want you to know what it is to be strong. Look with me at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Paul is clear throughout his letter to the Ephesians that there is a battle taking place. That there are are forces, there are, are ways of being and living and thinking that are hostile to the way we have now been called to live. But in the midst of that struggle, Paul wants us to know that we have been given power. And verse 10 tells us that that is the case because in the space of a dozen words, Paul chooses three phrases, three words to describe the mighty, empowering strength of God here. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. What is the nature of that mighty power? Well, if you can remember back to chapter 1, near the beginning of the letter, when Paul begins to pray for his friends in Ephesus, he prays as part of that prayer that they might be a people who know the incomparably great power at work within first Jesus Christ, but now also in them. And he said there in chapter 1 that 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 was the mighty power of God that raised Christ even from death itself and then caused him to ascend to now sit at the, the highest place, at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. Now, as Paul comes to the end of his letter, chapter 6, he returns to that same phrase. The same words that are mentioned in chapter 1 come back here in chapter 6. And Paul says, to be in Christ Jesus is now to be strong, finally. To possess the incomparably great strength of our God. And in a world that often wears us down, in a world that often wears us out, that that promise of power sounds pretty good. But before we go too much further, we have to remember that power comes in all different shapes and sizes. And some forms of power are, are profoundly beautiful, and other forms of power are terrifying and corrupted and evil. And so it's worth asking here at the outset, well, what sort of power is it that Paul is describing? What kind of power has been offered to us as the people of God? And the first thing I think Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12 is that we have been given strength to stand against false forms of power, deceptive kinds of power. Paul says in verse 11, be strong in God's mighty power so that you may stand against the devil's schemes, so that you might see evil for what it is, so that you won't be drawn into that kind of power. And one of the devil's favorite ways, I think, to to sow a, a deceptive kind of power within us is to create enmity between the people God has created. We see this throughout Scripture. We see this throughout the the history of mankind. How quickly disagreement and, and division can start to work between us. And pretty soon, you and I become enemies of one another. Right? Whether it's by standing on the wrong side of a political issue 
or some matter in the church or some matter within our families and households. The powers of darkness work best at at finding these little wrinkles in which to, to set us in opposition to one another. And when when the darkness does that, when the devil does that in us, it takes our gaze off who our true opposition is, right? If he can get us to do his work against one another, then then the battle is already ceded to him. So Paul counsels us that, that in the mighty strength of God, we must stand against this kind of human opposition. New Testament scholar Timothy Gombus warns that one of the most seductive ways in which the church historically has been lured into these false kinds of power is by, by being sucked into the wars of our culture and our day. Yes, the church is meant to, to fight against injustice. We are meant to be a prophetic voice to, to call the world back to life and to truth, and to what the Word of God says. But too often, we have done so in the way of the world. Right? We, we've set out to, to join that, that battle and that conflict by, by becoming right, by trying to gain control of the conversation, by trying to win the day, so to speak. And whenever we step into one of those those areas of conflicts in that way, it's easy for us to forget the power of God that's at work in Jesus Christ and instead prefer a kind of power that that sits more conveniently, more comfortably with us. A power that doesn't have to yield, that doesn't have to submit, a power that doesn't have to serve anyone else. And if we get sucked into that, then, then there's a temptation that even the people God loves, even the people that God desires to redeem, can become our enemies. We can be in opposition to the people God seeks to save. Paul makes it clear, though, in verse 12, that that is not a battle we are called to fight. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We are not to be set against one another. Instead, we are to be set in opposition to the insidious powers of darkness that would love nothing more than to watch us destroy each other. Our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil, Paul says. And so we must ask, well, what power do we have against that kind of darkness? What power do we take into that battle? In a piece written for the New York Times, Pastor Tim Keller says this about the kind of power Christians have. He says, Christians should first think how God rescued them. What kind of power did God use to rescue us? And he goes on to say, he did it not by taking power but by coming to the earth earth and losing glory and losing power by serving and dying on a cross. Keller says, how did Jesus save? Not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. 
And his point is that Jesus' power always prefers a form that is cruciform. It's a form we wouldn't suspect. As Paul writes in his letter to the, the Corinthians, the power, I'm sorry, the message of the cross, the message that, that God would come and do this for us, will always seem like foolishness to the world. But Paul says the message of of the cross to those of us who are being saved is the power of our God. How does God wield his power? How does he disarm the forces and the principalities of darkness? He does it not by bullying others, not by exerting his will over them, but by entrusting himself fully to, to the righteous and saving character of God. And so Paul, I think, is telling us when we enter into conflict, when we engage in spiritual battle, we have a choice to make. Whose power are we seeking to possess? Whose power, he says, are we going to put on in that battle? Are we going to choose our power or the power of God at work within us? And so he goes on in verse 13 through 17 to describe what it is to put on the power of God instead. Therefore, he says, therefore in the midst of this battle, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul describes how it is that we might stand in the midst of struggle and battle and conflict. And if you've ever been in an intense argument, if you've ever been in in a fight itself, Most of us, when we perceive some kind of physical threat, our first instinct is is to lash out. It's to retaliate in some way. In an argument, that's often the case as well, right? We, We look for some way to wound the other person, to strike back without thinking. But Paul says that that in the battle in which we are engaged, we are up against a foe that that we could not vanquish, we could not conquer in our own strength. We're fighting the, the powers and principalities of darkness. And so in this battle, Paul says, to, to just lash out in our own strength will not work. To fight against the spiritual forces of evil, we need the protection, we need the armor of God himself in order to stand. And so he says that we must consciously then choose to put on this armor when we are in a place of weakness, when we're in a place of attack or of conflict. 
But what is the armor of God he's describing? What is that armor like? How do we put it on? What is Paul describing here? I think it's important for us to notice that the pieces of armor described in Ephesians are almost all images or or descriptions found in the Old Testament scriptures. And in particular, in the book of Isaiah, sort of scattered throughout the chapters of that great book. If you want to look at them later today, you could go to Isaiah chapter 11, you could go to Isaiah 52, you could go to Isaiah chapter 59. And in each of those chapters, more or less the same scenario is described. It's God surveying the nations, surveying the earth that he has created, and looking for justice, looking for righteousness, but finding it nowhere. Instead, he sees the earth consumed with with darkness and with injustice and, and the power of evil reigning. And with no one to intervene, no one to step in on on the cause of of redemption and reclaiming what God loves. In each of these cases, God chooses to step into battle himself. And as he does so, he puts on his armor, the armor of God. And in these various passages, we're, we're told what that armor looks like. God puts faithfulness around his waist like a belt. He puts on his righteousness as a breastplate. God wears his saving power into battle like a helmet of salvation. The feet of God run to declare victory and declare peace to the people that he loves. Notice what Isaiah is saying in these passages. God does not wage warfare in the way you and I would. He does not carry the weapons of this world into battle. Instead, when God goes into battle for that which he loves, he wears his character. He wears his holiness. He brings with him the awe-inspiring power of who he is. The power of our God is that he's not a God that exploits. He is not a God that deceives. He's not a God who feeds on creating hostility among people. He's not even a God who is self-serving. But when God goes into battle, when Yahweh puts on his armor, he goes to fight against injustice, to tear down those who carry false pride and arrogance. And he goes in order to lift up the poor, lift up the weary. Again and again, Isaiah says, that is the way the Lord goes into battle. And so when we come to Paul here in the New Testament, his conviction is that that divine warrior that's described by Isaiah is now manifest is now clear and evident in the person of Jesus Christ who came laying down his life in weakness. But now, with the demonstration of God's power, has been raised from death, raised up to the the highest place 
He now sits above every ruler, every power, every authority. Paul says, Jesus, this divine warrior, has now been given power to reorder, to reconcile, to remake everything in creation under his reign, under his rule as Lord. And so for us to be strong, we we need to put on his kind of strength. But there is an element of mystery to the power that's still working itself out in Jesus. There's still a kind of hiddenness to the way Christ's power works in our world. Right? Because we look out and we don't see the, the power of righteousness and justice in, in every corner of our existence. Right? We still see the powers of darkness holding on, clinging to whatever power they have left. So we have to, we have to live in that tension. In her great book on, on the power of God, but also the weakness of our God, the, the, the weakness of, and the foolishness of the cross that is our power, author Marva Dawn retells the story of the Dutch people at the end of World War II. And during what was often called the Hunger Winter of 1944-1945. And at that time, the, the Allies in World War II had won a series of decisive victories over the Nazis. The Nazis' power really had been broken in earnest. But in the, the last throes of their power, the last bit of power they had left, they continued to oppress their neighbors. And, and one of the ways they did that was by shutting off shipments of food into the Netherlands during that winter. And so at that time, the people of the Netherlands knew that effectively the war had been decided, that the war was finished, but but there was still this oppressive power that was was hanging over them. And throughout that winter, they had to trust in the hope of the victory that had already been won, but, but was still working its way out, working its way toward them in its fullness. So too, you and I must now stand against the powers and the principalities of darkness in our world. We must continue to cling to the hope of the gospel and its victory in Jesus Christ until those other powers are finally and fully expelled. But the way, Paul says, we do that is not by by borrowing one little piece of God's armor at a time and, and somehow trying to wage this war ourselves. We don't borrow God's armor from him. We step into it. We step into the person of Jesus Christ. God wears it on our behalf. And if we are joined to him, if we find our identity in the person of Jesus Christ, then we are armored. We are protected. We are given this power. As Paul says again and again, we are a people now in Christ. And if that's the case, then we must wear, we must embody his truth. We must put on his righteousness. Our feet must be made ready with the gospel of his peace and the proclamation of of his kind of victory. We must put on our faith in who he is. We must place our trust in his salvation 
his saving power. We must place our trust that what his word says is true, is true. That's where real power lies. The church does spiritual warfare in as much as we find ourselves, we place our trust, we place our confidence in Jesus and Jesus only. No other form of power, no other form of pride, no other form of arrogance. Spiritual warfare is to believe that to be in Christ is enough for us. We don't have to win this battle or that battle. We have to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Marva Dawn, who gave the example of of the Dutch in World War II, says that the promise of the gospel is to believe that in every situation there is an unseen dimension of power that is infinitely real, infinitely more powerful than, than whatever our world perceives. And as the people of God, we must choose again and again to stand in him, stand in his power, to put his armor on us by by choosing to become part of him. So Paul says we're to prefer God's power to the power of the world around us. We're to put on the new identity, the new person, the new armor of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul says, We're to be made strong by the power of his spirit interceding and praying and and working through us. Look with me briefly at verses 18 through 20. Paul asks his friends in Ephesus, Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am now an ambassador and chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Notice how many times in these few verses Paul speaks of prayer. He says, if we want to know the mighty power of our God at work within us, we must choose to be a people who live in prayer. Not people who who pray at such and such a time. Not people who just pray as, as one thing that we do in our lives. Paul describes prayer as an all encompassing way of being in the world. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of requests, remembering all of God's people. We have this great armor in Jesus Christ, but the weapon par excellence that we have been given is the power of prayer. It's the way the Spirit of God breathes through us. He intercedes through us. He guides us as a people. The great 20th century theologian Jacques Ellul talks about how the enemies of Christ will seek to turn us aside constantly from our mission, from the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. But he says it is only through prayer that we recover the true way of Jesus in this world. Prayer locates us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It allows the Spirit to speak and to guide and to give us his words. And Paul is at his most bold here when he speaks about what the power of prayer can do. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says that that he wants them to pray for him because through the power of prayer he can be sent out as a redemptive ambassador, as as an emissary of God's hope into this world, and to fearlessly proclaim the gospel in, in the face of the powers of darkness. And I love the boldness and the confidence of what Paul says here. That no matter what he's up against, he knows that in the power of the Holy Spirit, he can be given words to say that which needs to be said. To speak the good news of the gospel. The last few months, our small group has been trying to take these passages from Ephesians and talk about how we put them to work. How do we apply them into everyday life? In the last few months, the last month or so, we've had a series of examples of people within our small group, you know, loving and and walking alongside friends of theirs who are not people who come to church. They're not, not Christians at this point in their journey. But in their love and in their care for them, there have been there have been occasions where they've just said, Can I pray for you? Can I speak to you in this way? And that has been welcomed. And they've been able to speak blessing and truth and love over them. And it's had a powerful effect on those relationships. Paul says, as we pray for one another, as we move in the power of God's spirit, we can fearlessly, lovingly, redemptively declare the good news of the gospel. And that we may stand in his strength. As we conclude this letter of the Ephesians and what it is to be in Christ, I think it's fitting that we do that on a communion Sunday and as we come to the Lord's table. Right, the way that we stand in the mighty strength of God is to put on the person of Jesus Christ. And we do that by placing ourselves in his care, by receiving his body into ours and making ourselves part of his new body.